Welcome to The Dive, the podcast that asks who said business news needs to be all business. I'm your host, Sasha Kelly. We're back for another Fast Three, where we cover three stories in less than 15 minutes. Today, we're covering a range of topics from a world-first global treaty on plastic waste to why Elon Musk told Disney CEO Bob Iger to go f*** himself. But first, we're looking at recent housing data that suggests it's actually cheaper to buy than rent in some parts of Australia. This just doesn't seem right. To talk about this today, I'm joined by my colleague and the co-founder here at Equity Mates. It's Alec Ranahan. Alec, welcome to The Dive. Sasha, good to be here. I'm just dying to know, how is it possibly cheaper to buy than rent in some places? Yeah, so this is a study from PropTrack, which is the data analytics of realestate.com.au. And what they do is they compare the cost of renting versus the cost of buying. Mm. And you're right, it it does seem counterintuitive. In early 2022, they found that about a quarter of properties nationally would be cheaper to buy than rent. In their latest data pack, released 28th of November 2023, it's risen to one third. That's a massive jump. I was surprised by a quarter and the fact that it's got to a third now. What's the methodology? Like, how have they actually calculated this? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. You know, we are sounding surprised because it does sound surprising. Because the intuitive question is, if a third of houses in Australia were cheaper to buy than rent, Mm. why aren't more people buying? Yeah, why haven't I bought a house? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So, we we, uh, had a look at the methodology to get a better understanding of how they're actually coming to this conclusion. So, what they're doing is comparing renting versus buying over a 10-year period. Now, for renters, they are assuming monthly rent, obviously, the bond, which gets returned in their assumptions, but there's an opportunity cost with that money. And they also assume rental increases over time. For buyers, they assume a 20% deposit, which is outside of this calculation. And then they assume, you know, the mortgage payments and all of that. So in some ways, it's cash flow v cash flow, Mm. what you're paying for your mortgage fee, what you're paying for your rent over a 10-year period. Obviously, rent gets increased in that time and your mortgage doesn't necessarily get increased depending on what interest rates do. But as we were reading the methodology, there is one more thing to keep in mind. They say that at the end of the tenure, so at the end of the 10-year period, buyers incur a selling cost. So the assumption is you sell the property after 10 years. Buyers incur a selling cost and receive the new value of the property less the remaining loan balance. These total costs are then converted to present value terms per month. So what they're saying there is that they assume that you sell the property at the end of the 10 years and however much money you make on the property is factored into the calculation. Yeah, and that's kind of moving into investing territory. And if you look at historically how Australian property has gone and you're comparing that with renting, that's a bit unfair. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit unfair, but I think the greatest unfairness comes in the 20% deposit because that is where the challenge lies. That is why even if one third of places in Australia right now are cheaper to buy than rent over a 10-year period, most people can't do it because they don't have a 20% deposit. I think this is off the top of my head, but I I think the stat is now for the average person earning the median wage, trying to buy the median house, they have to save for 14 years to get the 20% deposit. 
Whoa. I think that's it, it's about that. Yeah. Okay, it's, we'll it's, fact it's a, check afterwards, but that's a pretty good start. And I think yeah. it's important that you said um, homes just then because I used the word houses before, but when you drill into the data, it's particularly focused on apartments. Yeah, the the findings here are that apartments are a lot cheaper to buy than rent in many places. Let's take Sydney, for example, just 1.4% of houses would be cheaper to buy than rent over this 10-year period, according to this calculation from PropTrack, 1.4% of houses compared to 42.7% of apartments. Mm. Or in Perth, 74.3% of houses cheaper to buy than rent or 92.5% of apartments. And when they're doing the calculations and factoring in rent increases, that's notable because rents have been rising really quickly for those in apartments. Yeah, that's right. Rents have been rising quickly and the purchase price of apartments haven't been rising as quickly. Mm. Now, the key driver of this is the, I guess, the massive supply of students, young people, recent migrants and those on lower incomes trying to rent these apartments because that's in Australia's housing market at the moment, that's what these people can afford. And that ironically pushes the price of these lower end apartments up faster than like the national average for rent. Mm -hmm. So what about the geographic split? You mentioned Perth before. Is that indicative of where this issue is? Yeah. So if we combine houses and apartments and just talk about homes in general, in Western Australia, 78.7% of homes are cheaper to buy than rent, which is pretty amazing, more than three quarters. Next up is Queensland, just over a half, 53.3%, then Tassie, 48.1%. So that's the podium in Australia. At the other end, at the lowest end of the range is Victoria at 16.6%. Still a higher number than I would have expected before we looked at this story. Mm. So the obvious question, you mentioned the deposit before, is that the thing that's stopping people from buying? Yeah, that getting that 20% deposit is the big challenge uh, and it's the, the problem with affordability here. Since 2001, the national ratio of median house price to median income has almost doubled to 85 And here is the stat that I was trying to remember (laughs) earlier, Sasha. The time required for the accumulation of a deposit for a typical property has increased to 14 years. And ironically, Sasha, as rents rise, it gets even harder. Like that 14 years is going to keep blowing out if rents keep rising the rate they are. Mm. You know, 6.6% over the past 12 months, rents have risen. And it doesn't seem like it's slowing anytime soon. Yeah. So whilst this prop track finding suggests that a lot of people may be financially better off buying than renting long term, they can't get that deposit together. And ultimately, this report is just another frustrating piece <laughs> of financial content around the Australian housing market. Look, I don't think I could have wrapped it up better myself, Alec. Anytime properties in a headline, there's always something to kind of hit your head against the wall about. Let's move on to our second story, which is about this plastic waste treaty. The need is clear. Less than 10% of plastic waste is recycled, according to the UN Environment Programme. 
While at least 14 million tonnes ends up in oceans every year, the International Union for Conservation of Nature says. Plastic production has doubled in 20 years and at current rates could be triple by 2060 without action. So with that context, in March 2022, 175 nations voted to create a legally binding international agreement aimed at curbing plastic pollution. Negotiators have just met for the third time. So, Alex, surely we've got some good news. Sasha, we've got <laughs> Your news. face says that it's not. <laughs> Sorry, spoiler so, for podcasting. <laughs> so, when the 175 nations voted to create a legally binding international agreement aimed at curbing plastic pollution, they hoped to finalise the treaty by 2024. Okay. If these latest rounds of talks in the Kenyan capital of Nairobi were anything to go by, don't expect them to be signed by 2024 or 2025, to be honest. Why? Why is it so slow? So participants suggested that the third round of UN talks had drawn more than 500 proposals from governments and then all of these proposals required debate and votes and ultimately slow down the process and mean that not much progress on the actual treaty was made. But if that's disappointing, Sasha, and you you know the context that you put at the top makes it clear, the need is clear, mm-hmm. don't worry, we've got more talks coming, we've got two more rounds of talks okay. scheduled for next year. <laughs> so there's been no progress whatsoever? Look, there was a big split in attendees. There's sort of two philosophical camps when it comes to how we deal with this problem of plastic pollution. On one hand are the limit production of plastic countries. They're led by Canada, Kenya, the European Union, uh, and they're saying we need to actually just stop making as much plastic. Yeah. Then the second philosophical camp is the recycling camp. They're led by countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, which you may know are all big oil producers. You may also know that plastic is an oil byproduct, and Mm -hmm. so they don't want to limit production of plastic. They want to encourage recycling. Okay. So what we saw at this third round of talks in Nairobi was that these oil-producing countries, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and Russia, were putting proposal after proposal on the floor for debate uh, and, you know, the rest of the attendees accused them of basically employing stalling tactics to hinder progress and actually getting to a treaty. Yeah, because you're saying they're putting proposal after proposal on the floor and it appears to be good faith to promote recycling, but really it just moves the conversation away from curbing plastic production and stalls it in the process. Yeah, now... That seems to be the reporting out of the meeting. That's not what I'm saying. I wasn't there, but that seems to be the reporting. (laughs) (laughs) The reporting is that in these closed-door meetings, so many new proposals were put forward that the text of the treaty, instead of actually being revised and streamlined, ballooned in size over the course of the week and then all of that needs to be reviewed and debated and uh, yeah it just it just blew out the time that was allotted for these talks. So what happens next? So we have two more rounds of talks that will take place next year to try and finalize the deal. The first in Canada in April and then in South Korea in November with the goal of adopting a treaty 
by mid-2025. Now, there was a proposal to hold an extra round of talks before the next round in Canada. There was talks about talks, but the vote on the talks about talks failed to advance to the final plenary meeting where they would have talked about the talk even more and then voted on it. (laughs) Bureaucracy moves slowly. Sasha. Yeah, but meanwhile, the plastic industry produces really quickly. An estimated 400 million tonnes of plastic waste is produced every year. So, Alec, let's hope we see some progress in the coming meeting. Yeah, let's hope. Let's take a break there. And when we get back, we're going to talk about what on earth is going on at X, formerly known as Twitter, and Elon and his recent viral interview. That's in just a moment. Elon accused them of trying to blackmail him and then told Disney's Bob Iger to, quote, go f*** yourself. Yep. Go f*** yourself. But go f*** yourself. And for people who have tuned out of the whole Elon Musk saga, which I definitely was guilty of over the last couple of months, what's the context here? Yeah, a growing list of companies have decided to stop advertising on Twitter, now X. Let's just keep calling it Twitter. I think most people do just call it Twitter. It's yeah. like Prince, the artist formerly known as. You, yeah. yeah. <laughs> just- so this boycott really started in early November when some major companies announced they would be pausing their ads on Twitter due to concerns their ads might be shown alongside offensive material. This was really sparked by a Media Matters report that showed IBM ads being shown alongside content promoting the Nazi party and Adolf Hitler. And we can include the link to that Media Matters report in the show notes if people want to see it. So IBM was the first major advertiser to pull out. But from there, we've seen a flurry of others. There was Apple, Lionsgate, Disney. uh, And as of the time of recording, we also have Walmart, NBC Universal, Coca-Cola, Comcast. Uh, A lot of these advertisers, some are just tightening their belts but a lot of them are worried about what content their ads are showing up next to. Mm, Have any of the companies made comments explicitly? Yeah, so a few have. Walmart said something generic like, we have multiple ways to connect with our customers. Mm. Like most of these companies don't want to add fuel to the fire. They just want to quietly back away. 
Bob Iger from Disney was a little bit more explicit. He said he, quote, felt that the association was not necessarily a positive one for us. Yeah. You said a little bit more explicit, but not as explicit as Elon was when he responded. Go yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. That's how I feel. Don't advertise. So, Alec, how much is this boycott expected to cost Twitter? Yeah, so for context, X's, uh, Twitter's revenue has already fallen a fair bit. Mm -hmm. Uh, Elon has previously said that X's ad revenue is down around 50% overall year on year based on what Twitter generated in 2022. Estimates are they're going to bring in somewhere around the $2 billion mark for advertising. Keep that $2 billion in mind because that's sort of where they're at. So according to the New York Times, this expanded advertiser boycott is set to cost X around $75 million in ad revenue this year. So like a meaningful number, $75 million is $75 million, Mm. but a fraction of their $2 billion of advertising revenue. But the important thing to keep in mind is that Twitter is not profitable. Estimates are they're going to lose maybe a few hundred million dollars this year. They've got a heap of debt and then losing more revenue on top of that just makes their losses even bigger. And Elon said in this New York Times interview that this boycott could end up being existential to the company. Yeah, that's right. He said the boycott could, quote, kill the company. He appeared to be pretty zen about it and he went on to say, And the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company. But I think he's playing, I I don't think the world is going to think, oh, Disney and Apple and Coca-Cola stopping advertising killed Twitter. I think how loud and how public and how outspoken he has been, people are only going to see Twitter's fortunes tied to his behavior. I don't think the advertisers will be coming in for a lot of blame here. Yeah, absolutely. 100% agree. But, you know, there are plenty of people that love Elon out there. And what we did see in the few days after was a massive spike in the Google search terms for cancel Disney Plus and cancel Hulu. So some people are taking his words on board. (laughs) Bill Ackerman wrote a very long tweet in support of him as well, which was interesting reading. Is there anything else we need to know about Elon after this interview? Yeah, look, the uh, go F yourself line wasn't even the most surprising from the New York Times interview. (laughs) Instead, the thing that stood out to me the most was what he said about his own environmental credentials. He said that Tesla has done more for the environment than any other company in history. And as the head of Tesla, that means he's done more for the environment than any other person on earth. I'll leave you to make your judgment on that one, Sasha. (laughs) I think we can let that line speak for itself, can't we? Let's leave it there for today, Alec. It's going to be our last episode for the year on Friday, so please get in touch with us, contact at equitymates.com. Tell us what you'd like us to talk about. We're going to look back at some of the biggest stories from the year that was 2023. So we'll be back in your feeds then. Until then, thanks for joining me, Alec. Thanks, Sasha. 
You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.